Well, it's kind of Valentine's weekend, I guess. It was the other day and family weekend, so we have a, just a great topic to fit with all that. <laughs> We've been uh, working through a series called Across the Spectrum, which we are taking all of sort of the, the difficult topics, uh, some of the topics that we wrestle with sort of behind closed doors and maybe we struggle and have questions about and sometimes we're afraid to, to ask questions uh, about these subjects and uh, uh, maybe af afraid to, uh, to, uh, to challenge them or to ask some of the hard questions because all of these things that we've been looking at, uh, there's hard questions uh, that we need to ask and so uh, across the spectrum meaning we're taking topics and we're looking at how different Christians answer the question. Uh, because sometimes we think that all Christians think the same on everything, and it's just not, not true. Um, we have diverse opinions on certain subjects, and so we've looked at creation. Last week we looked at uh, the problem of Old Testament violence, and this week we're going to tackle the question of, of hell and, uh, and a loving God. And um, uh, perhaps you've struggled with, with how does hell work in a loving God, or perhaps... Uh, you've had people challenge you, or perhaps you just wrestle with those kind of questions. And so that's the, the topic for today. This series of messages is a little different than the other message we typically do, because this, this, the set is very much focused on the mind. And so again, I'm going to talk fast and go through tons of scriptures and, and, uh, and uh, just make your mind, mind work. Because the Bible says we're to love God with all our minds. So there are times when we need to think through things. And uh, at the same time, we should never be afraid to ask hard questions. I mean, if Jesus really is the, the, the way and the truth in the life, then we shouldn't be afraid to ask hard questions and have conversations and to dig deep into the scripture. And um, so as we talk about theology, as always, I'll throw this up again. Uh, we can look at theology in terms of concentric circles, where God is at the center, and we have dogma, which is those things that all Christians agree on. Uh, then we have doctrines, which would sort of differentiate between different denominations and different Christians. Uh, then we have opinion, those things that are, are not very clear in the Bible. Um, but our identity is always found in God. He is where we find our value, our worth, uh, our, our hope is found in the Father, in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And therefore, someone attacks our opinion or our doctrine, or even starts you know, pushing our dogma, or even attacks God, we're okay because our identity is found in the Father. Uh, we don't have to get mad, we don't have to freak out, we don't have to, to yell, we don't have to split up and uh, whatever, I mean, because our identity is found, found in, in, in God. And so this whole series are dealing with issues in the realm of doctrine. Now sometimes some Christians will want to push some of the things we're talking about into dogma, but I would consider them all, all in the category of doctrine. Uh, another reason for the series is, is to help with unity. Uh, unity is incredibly important in the Christian church. In John chapter 17, it says that I have given them, that that's us as followers, the glory you gave me. And if you just consider how much glory the Father gave Jesus, it's an incredible amount of glory. Uh, but he says that, that God has given us the same glory that, that, that God gave Jesus. Now, why did he give us all this glory? so that they may be one as we are one. In other words, the glory of God is upon us in powerful ways, and the reason the glory of God is upon us is so that we, as Christians, can be unified. So this text says, 
And so easily we as Christians take unity and we kind of throw it away because someone challenged my opinion or challenged my doctrine and we get angry and we're going to start a whole other movement or whatever it might be. Uh, but unity is important. It says, I, uh, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that, you're, that, that you love them as much as you love me. In other words, one of, the, one of the ways the church is to testify to the world of the reality of God and the reality of God's love is by people looking in at the church and seeing uh, this unity. And the only way unity is impressive is when you have different people who get along. I mean, unity is not impressive at all if everybody thinks the same. <laughs> That's not very impressive because anybody can do that. As Jesus said, you know, what good is it to love those who love you? Uh, unity is shown when you're able to get along with people who think a little differently than you. And the church is to be that picture. People with all kinds of different backgrounds and socioeconomic statuses and all those kind of differences and even differences of opinion and yet still love each other and get along and, and, and focus in on those core issues. And so... Uh, some of these issues, yeah, again, uh, Christians will disagree on. Now, this text in John chapter 17 says that God loves us as much as God loves Jesus. That's what it's saying there. The same love that God has for Jesus, God has for you and I. Now, you can imagine the love that, that the Father has for Jesus. It's a perfect love, a beautiful love. But Jesus says here that the Father loves us as much as he loves Jesus. And God loves you so powerfully and so amazingly. In fact, God loves this whole world. I mean, that famous verse in John 3, 16, for God so loves the world. Which brings up this question of hell. If God is love, if God loves people passionately, if God so loves the world that he even sent Jesus then, then how in the world does this line up with this, this idea of, of a hell? Uh, but we do know that Jesus taught about a separation coming. In, in, in Luke chapter 13, he says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. And so Jesus is saying, this is something we need to understand. Uh, that the Bible uh, often talks about this, this coming separation in, in the future. And Jesus talking about Hell, and the word hell, by the way, it was simply Gehenna, which uh, meant the garbage dump. It was the garbage dump, which if you, if you read in the Old Testament, it was the place where they throw uh, like dead animals in their garbage, and it constantly burned, and, and that was the word that Jesus used for hell. Uh, but he describes it this way, uh, anguishing and tormenting. He describes it as weeping and gnashing of teeth. He describes it as an unquenchable fire, a fiery furnace, an outer darkness. And, and very few people take this, this literally in terms of there's actually going to be complete darkness and yet fire because, I mean, those can't work together. But these are symbolic of, of, of anguish. Uh, that, that, I mean, when do you gnash your teeth? Usually it's when you're really angry or in pain. I mean, they're, they're, they're pictures of, of anguish. Uh, and so the question 
uh, we'll tackle this and then we'll get into the different views, is, is how could a loving God send people to hell? I mean, how can there be this separation where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? I mean, how could God do this? Well, actually, the question in itself is wrong because we see that God doesn't want anybody uh, to end up in hell. 2 Timothy 2.4 is, is very clear. God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It doesn't say he wants some to go to hell and I just can't wait to send people there. What, he wants all to be saved. Or 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, again, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Uh, Ezekiel 33, uh, we looked at this last week. Uh, Surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? And so we see uh, God wanting everybody to save and calling out. I mean, the last thing that God wants is, is for anyone to end up in a place of, of anguish. In fact, uh, God so did not want people to end up in a place of anguish that he, he sends Jesus uh, to die on a cross and be tortured uh, to, in order to save people. And Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I mean, this is the extent that God went to make sure uh, that people uh, don't end up in, in a place of anguish. Uh, but again, God gives free will. Uh, God doesn't force anybody uh, to go to heaven. I mean, you could picture maybe someone who is stuck in the middle of the ocean floating by themselves, and, and obviously they're in need of rescue. You can't live floating in the, in the ocean forever. And, and a boat comes by and says, hey, you know, I'm here to rescue you. And let's say this guy just refuses. I don't want to rescue. I love the ocean. I want to spend the rest of my life here. Please go away. And so the boat leaves, and then and this guy, uh, later another boat comes along, and they throw a, you know, a little one of those red safety inner tubes, or whatever they are, in the water, and he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't grab it. And he pushes it away. And later, maybe some more people come and they, they, they forcibly try to haul him in the boat. And still, he kicks them away and says, I don't want anything. I don't want to rescue. And eventually, you say, you know, this is kind of on you. In the same way, God has done uh, so much uh, to, to bring us to a place where we are able to go to be with him forever. That there is a place where it's not God sending people to hell. It's, it's really our, our own choice. And so the question itself is wrong. And if you look at like Matthew chapter 6, where it says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know heaven is a place where God's will is completely done all the time. Heaven will be a place where we love each other sacrificially, where the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all those things are going to be manifested perfectly. Uh, we're going to love God and love God and love people. Uh, but what if someone doesn't want to do that? Now, God's not going to force them to go to heaven. And so if freedom can account for evil in this world, the same freedom explains why hell exists in the next world. That if someone does not want to live in the love of God and loving each other, uh, there has to be a place for them. And this is that place what Jesus Christ uh, calls a place of anguish. As one scholar put it, hell can exist precisely because God is love. Because God is love, the 
comic ending is assured, but because he is love, hell is also possible. Love is a choice. Love emerges from freedom. The establishment of freedom therefore establishes free choice about love. If God is love, God is freedom. If God is freedom, free choice is part of the world God has made. That is, some may choose not to love God, not to love Jesus, not to be with God. Or as C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says, uh, there are two kinds of people in, in the end. Those whom, uh, who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, uh, it is opened. Whereas C.S. Lewis says, the door of hell, the doors of hell are locked from, from the inside. And so, uh, it's not God wanting to send. Uh, God has given this, this free choice. But within that, those who don't choose... Um, Christians debate over what exactly this idea of anguish and, and, and afterlife looks like. And within Christianity, there are three sort of main views. The traditional view, uh, conditionalism, and Christian universalism. And we're going to look at all three. All three of these views uh, were held uh, within the early church uh, quite almost equally. It wasn't until the 4th century that the traditional view became the sort of the dominant view. And this is why in the early creeds, the Nicene Creed and, uh, and the Apostles' Creed, there's no clear statement about, about hell in terms of what it looks like. The only statement is, he will come to judge the living and the dead, and he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, because there was still debate over what exactly uh, this hell looks like in the, early, in the early church. And that is why these views fall in the realm of doctrine and not, and not uh, dogma. Uh, but all three of these views agree on some things. Uh, first of all, they agree that there is a coming judgment. This is what the creeds say. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 is quite clear on this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Or Hebrews 9, each person is destined to die once and after that comes, comes judgment. And, and this is just a natural thing that the, 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 the Bible says, but also just naturally humankind has this idea because... I mean, we, want, we want justice to be done in a fair way. Uh, I mean, nobody would like someone who, you know, molested, you know, uh, like dozens of children to stand before a judge and the judge to say, okay, you know, forget about it, it's all good. Uh, there's a sense of justice that we all have. And there is a time when we will stand before God and God is going to bring uh, a justice, that there is this, this judgment day and all three views would agree on, on the, set, uh, 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 this, the judgment. But the debate over is this. Uh, first of all, what does the anguish of hell? Uh, what is the anguish of hell? How, how does it come? Where's this pain from? And we're not going to talk a lot about that, but briefly, some think that this anguish actually comes from God himself, that God is almost there torturing people. Uh, some people think the anguish is from Satan and demons. Uh, the Bible tells us that hell was actually created for Satan and demons, and some think that the anguish actually comes from these from the demons who will be there. And, and of course, there's people who have had visions of demons munching on their flesh and all kinds of horrible things. Some people th think it comes from that. Others, like C.S. Lewis and others, would, would say the anguish comes from your own sin and selfishness. Uh, that when you pull yourself away from God, your selfishness will begin to run out of control and the anguish is actually more self-inflicted. 
And so uh, the other debate, and these are the ones we're going to look at today, is the primary debate is, is hell forever? And secondly, can people be redeemed from hell? And this is where the debate in Christianity lies across these three views. And so the first view is the tradi traditional view. And it's called the traditional view. It's been the primary view since the 4th century. Uh, before that, um, the other three were more common, but today throughout history, this has been the most common view. And that is eternal conscious torment. In other words, uh, you will live forever in hell and be tormented forever and ever and ever without end. And so the definition of this view is the human soul is immortal and cannot die. Therefore, hell will be one of eternal conscious torment. In other words, this view believes that, that uh, at the moment of conception, that, that every human has an immortal soul. That every single person automatically is immortal. They live forever. And so the question becomes, where are they going to live? If they don't live in heaven, then if they're immortal, then they'll have to live in hell forever because the soul is immortal. And, um, uh, and this view, uh, it's just some of the verses that they will turn to, uh, Daniel 12. Everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, heaven. Others to shame and everlasting contempt. And so they will take this word everlasting to mean duration. That duration-wise, uh, people will be in contempt and torment forever and ever and ever and ever and ever without end. Or Matthew 25 it's the words of Jesus, depart from me, you who are accursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And so they would see that as duration, uh, that people will suffer uh, forever without end in, in hell is the traditional view. Or Revelation 20, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's why it's called eternal conscious torment. It doesn't end because the soul is immortal. And, and uh, again, the torment can be, look different depending on your view, but it's eternal. Oh, or Mark 9, hell is where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched or the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. And so this view is just saying it's ever, forever. With no end, uh, no possible escape. It's just forever and ever and ever and ever. Uh, and, and some of the question sometimes is like, you know, how can a loving God, uh, you know, allow someone to be tortured forever? I mean, maybe you could maybe conceive of a Hitler or something, but what about someone who just, just you know, doesn't accept Jesus or something like that or, or whatever it might be? How could God um, uh, punish someone forever and ever? And the answer this view gives is this, that sin against an infinite God is worthy of eternal punishment. And they would point to Hebrews 10, uh, where it says, How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as unholy, uh, as unholy, uh, like the blood of Jesus? And they would give this illustration. Uh, so, so I went up and I punched my neighbor in the face. I'd get in trouble. I might get punched back. Uh, but if I went and punched a police officer, I'd be in a lot more trouble. But if I went and punched uh, Trump or Trudeau, which maybe somebody would like to, you'd be in more trouble because they're in charge, right? Uh, and so they would say, you know, this is not sin against another person. This is sin against an infinite holy God. And the, and the punishment is eternal conscious 
torment forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So that's the traditional view of hell. Uh, if you want more information on this view, you can pick up a book called Erasing Hell. Uh, Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle, though interesting enough, Preston Sprinkle actually changed his view a little bit since he's written this book. Uh, but it's a uh, book that will present the traditional view. The second view is this. This view uh, is uh, uh, gained a lot of momentum in, in Christianity and uh, has been there ever since the beginning as well, but it's called conditionalism, or conditional immortality, or annihilationism. And this view says the human soul is not immortal. Immortality, or eternal life, is a gift from God. Those who refuse to receive the gift of immortality will justly pay for their sins in hell, and then cease to exist. And so like the previous view that says that every soul is immortal automatically, therefore hell has to last forever, this view says, Immortality is actually a gift you receive from Jesus. And if you don't receive the gift of immortality, then uh, eventually you will cease to, to exist. That's what this view would say. Uh, so they would say that immortality is a gift from God, not an automatic given, as the previous view says. And they, they got verses, of course. Uh, Galatians 6, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal. Uh, so God alone is immortal, and he can give out the gift to whomever he wants, but not everybody is automatically immortal. Or Romans 2, to those who persist in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. And so it seems to say here that those who, who seek God receive immortality, again, that immortality is not just a given, this view would say. Or Proverbs 12, in the way of righteousness there is life, along that path is immortality. Or that just the fact of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so this view would say that God gives the gift of immortality. That's not just an automatic for everybody. That if you don't receive the gift of immortality, then you will eventually perish. And so this view, or they look at Matthew uh, chapter 20, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body, uh, soul and body in hell. And so the other view would say, actually, it's not possible to have your soul destroyed, at least in a literal sense. They would see it figuratively. figuratively. This view would say that God actually literally can destroy a soul and body because people are naturally not immortal unless they receive the gift. The other argument this position takes is that they would take death literally. Where all of the other view has to take death symbolically or uh, figuratively. And so, where it says in Romans 6, For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. This view would take that actually literally. The uh, traditional view has to take it figuratively. In terms of, they would say the wage of sin is, uh, the figurative way is, is uh, sort of spiritual death and hell, they would say. But the gift of God is eternal life. This view would say, the wages of sin is death. In other words, you will cease to exist. But the gift of God is eternal life. Or uh, John 10, I will give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. In other words, if they don't have eternal life, they, they will perish, and they take it literally. Uh, Revelation 2, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. In other words, we, we die once, and then we go to heaven or hell, and this view would say the second death is actually you cease to exist. Where the previous view would have to say that's figurative. 
That's figurative of just being uh, tormented forever, and uh, it's kind of a spiritual death. Again, they would have to take it figuratively. This, this view takes these words very literally. Uh, in Psalm 37, again, they would say, death means death. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the wicked will perish. Uh, though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed. They will go up in smoke. And so this view would take all of those words literally. <laughs> death means death, perish means perish, destroyed means destroyed. Where the previous view would say that those are all figurative of, of, of spiritual, spiritual death. Uh, this view would also take words like destroy and destruction to mean exactly what they say, destroy and destruction. Or the previous view would have to see them as, again, figurative or, or, or symbolic. Uh, as one Greek scholar says, my mind fails to conceive a grosser misinterpretation of language than when the five or six strongest words which the Greek tongue possesses, signifying destroy or destruction, are explained to mean maintaining an everlasting but wretched existence. To translate black as white is nothing to this. And so this Greek scholar says they shouldn't be translated figuratively, but literally. And, um, and so they would take the, uh, verses like this. The one who's able to save and destroy. So you're going to be saved, or again you'll be destroyed, as in uh, destruction, as in cease to exist. Or Matthew 7, <coughs> enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter enter through it. Now the question, of course, uh, that is asked of this position is, well, if, if everyone eventually dies out in hell, then what does this deal with all this eternal stuff? Uh, and this view would say that eternal, literally, can be about duration, as the previous view, or literally about result or consequence. This, so this view would say that eternal is about result and consequence. Uh, and so you can think about an, maybe an asteroid flying through space. We might say, that asteroid is, is going to be flying through space for all eternity. That's duration. Well, let's say that asteroid flies into a planet and is blown up into a, in a zillion pieces. We might say, that asteroid is destroyed for all eternity. That's about result. That the result or the consequence is for all eternity. And so this view would say, when you die, it's for all eternity. You're eternally dead or you're eternally destroyed uh, is how they would put it. And the Bible <clears throat> simply uses this word this way. Uh, it uses it both ways. Sometimes it's about duration, sometimes it's about result and consequence. These two verses, for instance, are about result and consequence. When it talks about eternal salvation. It doesn't mean that we're going to keep on being saved for all eternity. It means we are saved and the result of that salvation is eternal. Uh, same with redemption, uh, eternal redemption. It's not that we're going to be continually redeemed throughout all millennia. It's that we are redeemed, and of course it'll be finished at the return of Christ, but that result of our redemption is eternal. And so they would say that the Bible literally means death, and that death will be for eternity. It is about result and about consequence. So when you see eternal destruction, eternal judgment, eternal punishment, they would say it's about the result. That those who in hell will be destroyed for all eternity, their judgment will be done for all eternity, they will be punished for all eternity in terms of, in terms of result. 
Uh, what about smoke rising forever? Another a challenge to this um, Revelation 14, where it says, They will be tor uh, tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. And so the previous view will say it's just forever. This can't be just a duration. Uh, but if you compare it to Isaiah, <clears throat> this view will say uh, that this phrase is used for consequence, not duration. So Isaiah 34 says, Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur. Her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. And it's talking about the destruction of Eden. It didn't mean that Eden was continually being destroyed for all eternity. It was destroyed. It was done. Never to exist again. And it uses this phrase of its smoke will rise forever in terms of result and consequence. Uh, so this view would also say that uh, the traditional view doesn't work, they'll say, because all things will eventually be kingdom. And that doesn't work, they would say, with the traditional view. For instance, Colossians 1. Through him, Jesus uh, is going to reconcile to himself all things. And they would say, how is that even possible if there's people being tormented in hell for all eternity? How can all things be reconciled to him when in reality there's a whole lot that aren't? Or Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And again, they would say, how is this possible if there's people still rebelling in hell and being tortured forever and ever? How is it possible uh, that every knee should bow? The only way that this makes sense, as people say, is if those people eventually perish. And therefore, one day, everything will be kingdom. And everything will be defined by the love of Jesus in, in the universe. Uh, the other thing they will point out is that eternal conscious torment makes God out to be cruel and unjust. Again, this idea of God being love, and then there's people being tortured for all eternity, this view would say that that makes God to be cruel and unjust. When things like in the Bible in Psalm 30, says, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Or Revelation 16, yes, Lord Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And they would say, is that actually really just of God? to allow someone to be tortured forever and ever and ever in hell. And so that's the conditionalism view. And uh, if you want more information on this, you can read uh, Dr. Edward Fudge's book, The Fire That Consumes, or uh, you can go to the Rethinking Hell podcast, which is a podcast that focuses just on the subject, if you're ever interested. <laughs> uh, but they primarily come from this view, but they interview people from, from all other views. Yeah, Darren. Yeah, they would, they would all see that as result and consequence rather than duration is how they interpret, interpret all of that, that section. Uh, the last view uh, is called Christian Universalism, this, or Universal Restoration, or Universal Redemption, or Evangelical Universalism, or uh, sometimes called the Hope of Restoration. Lots of you uh, different names for this one. Uh, the definition of this view is this. That God continues to invite repentance after one dies physically, and eventually all will uh, be willing to repent and come to Christ. God will never stop trying to save his creation until they have all come home to him and have been perfected. Hell is a place where an individual sin and evil is consumed. And so this view, at least the majority of Christian universalists, would still have the idea of a hell, but they would see that, that people, once they go to hell, uh, can still have a chance to repent, uh, change their mind, and be reconciled. And, and so a lot of Christian universalists uh, would say that eventually 
uh, hell will be empty because everyone will come to repentance. And uh, this needs to be differentiated from standard universalism. And often this view is, is accused of being the same as kind of worldly universalism, but it's different. Uh, universalism, kind of in the world sense, would say that all roads lead to God. Uh, Christian universalism would still say that one can only be saved through Jesus. And they would, of course, agree with Acts 4.12 that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind which must be saved. And so they would say that the only way to be saved is through Jesus, but eventually that will happen where all or most, sometimes it's most people, will be saved. Uh, standard universalism would say uh, it does not matter if one trusts Jesus or not. Christian universalism says everyone will eventually trust Jesus. Standard universalism says there are no consequences. If one does not trust Jesus, Christian universalism says there are consequences if one does not trust Jesus. Standard universalism usually says there's no hell. Christian universalism says there is a hell, and it's the purpose for purifying or even uh, paying for your sins, but eventually you can, if you choose so, be redeemed. And so here's some of the verses that uh, Christian universalists will take. In John 12, uh, Jesus said, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And, and so they would challenge the other views and say, well, all obviously doesn't mean all here, if you take another view. Uh, Romans 5, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemna uh, condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. And so they'd say, the whole world fell into sin because of Adam, one person. Jesus came to be the second Adam, and through Jesus we have life that, again, is given to all mankind. And that, just as sin affected all, the righteousness of Jesus will eventually affect all, and all will be saved. Or as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all die, <clears throat> so in Christ all will be made alive. And they would say that the other views would have to take this figuratively. If all doesn't mean all, it would just mean some or a few. Or Colossians chapter 1. Uh, through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so they would say, well, I mean, if, if the other views are right, then Jesus doesn't reconcile all things. He just reconciles some things. But they would say the Bible says all things, Therefore, all must eventually come to reconciliation to Jesus. Or Acts 3, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Or there, look to Psalm 22, 27. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of, of the nations will bow down before him. And so, uh, through, see, throughout the Bible, this view says that there's these passages that talk about all people being reconciled and all people coming to know, coming to know Jesus. Uh, again, uh, more verses, Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Or uh, Ephesians chapter 1, unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And so they would say the only way this is possible for full unity, a full redemption, is if everyone eventually comes to know, comes to know Jesus. And uh, they would also point to themes of judgment and then restoration in the Bible. Like Ezekiel 16, where God says, uh, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom. 
I mean, Sodom was judged. It was condemned. It was destroyed. But then there's this text in Ezekiel that says, I will restore the portions of Sodom and her daughters and of Samaria and her daughters and your fortunes along with them. Or Jeremiah 16, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to the land I gave their ancestors. And so you see throughout the Bible, it's judgment and then later restoration. And so they would say there is a coming judgment and there will people who, who, who refuse Jesus will maybe end up in hell, uh, but then there's restoration there, that there's continued restoration even after you die. Well, they point to Romans 5, where sin abounds. And obviously that's going to be in hell. <laughs> but grace abounds all the more, they would say. Uh, so what does this view do with the things about eternal? Uh, they would do kind of the same thing. They would say it's about result or, or dura not duration. But they, they would also say sometimes it's about location. That the punishment, that the fire is about the location where that happens is in eternity. That's where you're refined. That's where you are punished maybe for your horrible sins. But then after that you are restored is how they will typically answer that. But the big question is, is where does he get this idea of salvation after death? That, that, that maybe there's another chance. For those who died, who didn't receive Christ, or live in a Christ-like way, well, they would point to some verses, like in 1 Peter, where it says that Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago. Or they would look to 1 Peter 4. This is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. And so they would say that the gospel continues to be preached to those who are dead. Or Hebrews 9.27 uh, just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. They would say, well, uh, does that judgment have to be eternal conscious torment? Maybe that judgment is, is a refining kind of judgment. And they would look at a verse like John 17, how God makes them holy by his truth. The part of God's righteous judgment is, is refining them and continue to, to, to present his truth and the gospel will be preached. And, and they'll point to Revelation 21 where it talks about this picture of the, the new Jerusalem and it says, its gates will never be closed at the end of the day. And there seems to be a picture in that text of people who are maybe still rebelling, yet, rebelling, uh, yet the, the, the gates of the city will never be shut. And so they would point to uh, salvation afterwards. Uh, one scholar who takes this view says this. Here's the question I want to present, uh, press for the traditional view. Why is repentance at the very moment of death accepted, but repentance a moment after death too late? Indeed, what is objectionable about the idea of a second chance, especially since many people have countless chances in this life? By contrast, many other people have few, if any, chances to hear the gospel and respond to it. Now, if God truly loves all persons and desires the salvation of all, would he not make certain that all persons have ample opportunity to receive his grace, even if that entails chances to receive the gospel after death. And so uh, this view would challenge the idea that, I mean, there, there may be some people who grew up in some tribe in the middle of nowhere who never get the opportunity to hear Jesus. Is that just for God to condemn them to hell for all eternity? Uh, wouldn't God uh, give them maybe a chance after death to, to hear uh, about Jesus? Or C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis, by the way, was one who too, took this view. Yeah. Christian Universalist. Uh, he would say, you have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. This is coming from God's perspective. But if you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see this job through. 
whatever suffering it, it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest, nor let you rest until you are literally perfect, until my Father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you. As he said, he was well pleased with me. This I can do and will do, but I will not do anything less. And so this view would talk a lot about this idea of full disclosure. Uh, and they would um, talk about, let's say you went and bought a car, and uh, it's a used car, and the guy says, you know, the car's not, not that great, but, you know, it's okay. And so you buy it. And you get in this car, and all of a sudden you realize this car is, is, is really bad. It's like everything's broken, nothing works on it. And you realize, if I just knew how bad this car was, I wouldn't have bought it. And you would say, I, I didn't have full disclosure. I didn't know how bad this car was. Now that I know, I wouldn't have bought it. And they would say that the only way for God to be just and, and perfect is for him to be righteous in terms of full disclosure. Again, there may be someone who doesn't really fully hear of God or Jesus or whatever who, who ends up in hell and then realizes this is really bad. That's not what I signed up for. I mean, all my friends told me that, that hell was a place where all my friends, good buddies were going to be, so I wanted to go there. Or, or uh, you know, I, I grew up in church, and my church is really nasty and mean, and, and, uh, and I hate Christianity because, you know, there are lots of stories out there. You know, my stepfather was a Christian, abused me, and I hate Christians, and I don't want anything to do with Christians. And so they reject Jesus because of a Christian. And they end up in hell for all eternity. This view would say, no, the only way for God to be righteous is for full disclosure. And the only way for full disclosure to happen is if there is a chance after death, this view would say. Uh, they would point to the prodigal son uh, as an idea of how the son uh, rebels against his father. He runs away. He does his own thing. And then it says this, and he came to his senses. He realized how horrible it was being away from the father. And then he comes running back and God receives him. And they would put that in sort of a meta picture. That we may rebel from God and we may run and then you end up in hell and you realize, man, this is really horrible. This is not what I want. This is, this is not what's good for me. And then, and then they can still run back to the Father and the gates of Jerusalem will be open. But the issue with this, as they themselves will say, is, is how does this work with the gift of free will? If everyone's going to be saved, then it's like God, again, is forcing his agenda. Is he going to force you to go to heaven if you don't want to? And that's why some universalists would just call it hopeful restoration. That they would say that there still may be people, even after death, who refuse and may actually spend eternity in hell. Or may spend eternity and then, then fade away, depending on your view. And so some universalists will still acknowledge that people may be stuck there because of their free choice forever and ever and ever. So if you want more uh, information on this book, uh, View, you can grab The Evangelical Universalist by Gregory MacDonald. Or uh, her gates will never be shut by Bradley Jerzak. And so uh, you basically have three views within Christianity about the fire of hell. You have the view that fire torments forever and ever and ever. You have the view uh, that fire consumes and eventually you perish. And there's a view, um, which is probably the minority view in Christianity, that the fire purifies and then eventually uh, you can have a second chance to, to, to turn to Jesus are the, the, three, the three views. Uh, but in the end, we always want to finish on Jesus as we've done this series. Uh, in the end, uh, this, this shouldn't be something that, that you yourself worried about in terms of your own salvation. Uh, because uh, there's Jesus. And Jesus is the answer. 
Uh, Jesus is the answer. It says in John 10 that I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And, and your eternal life uh, can begin now uh, with Jesus. Uh, that abundant life is not just, just for the future. It's going to be amazing in heaven, but it can start now with Jesus. Uh, when you open your heart to him and you say, Jesus, uh, I want to be a follower of you. And I want to I follow you and love people as you love. Uh, this is the way to satisfaction in John chapter 6. <clears throat> Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And, and if there's a hunger in your life today for something more, a hunger in your life for something that satisfies. And maybe you just find yourself keep you're bumping your head in the wall trying to find satisfaction in relationships or satisfaction in money or your job and you can't find it. It's because you are made for Jesus. It is only through Jesus that we find ultimate satisfaction. And when we open our heart to Jesus, uh, we get Jesus and we get filled with the Holy Spirit and he brings us to the Father and, and the Father loves on us as well. And so if you don't know Jesus here, I'd encourage you to, to open up your heart to him. Uh, you can just make your way over to the prayer team. They'll be over at the end, and, and you're going to say, you know, I, I need Jesus, and they'll be happy to, to pray with you. Uh, of course, if you need prayer for anything, uh, healing, uh, for just hope, feeling down, uh, you need something big to happen in your life, you can go over there and receive prayer. So I'll invite the worship team up.